enterprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest escapes these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And this show is presented by Inside Tracker. We're all doing the best that we can to be the best athletes that we can be. We're tracking our mileage. We have our schedules. We're doing all this stuff. But what are you doing for the inside of your body? More specifically, the 43 different biomarkers that Inside Tracker tests. I, I firmly believe that people should be getting quarterly tests on all of this stuff because you just don't know what you don't know. And for so many of us, it can be iron levels, ferritin levels, vitamin D, testosterone, what have you. For me, it's my lipid panel gets to get checked as well. While that may not directly impact my performance, it definitely impacts my health to say nothing of their inner age calculator, which while we all know our ages, what is your inner age? Meaning how healthy is your body if you're going to put it in one big old metric? And that is exactly what Inside Tracker does. You can save 25% on any and all Inside Tracker tests if you go to insidetracker.com forward slash rambling runner or just use code rambling runner at checkout. So today, which is now becoming basically a pattern that I think I want to keep doing. We have a two-part episode. So we have our typical feature story with Alex Elizabeth, a truly inspiring and amazing woman who recently wrote an essay in Runner's World uh, detailing uh, her history in running and different things that she's had to deal with along the way. I'll let her explain it in a little bit. And after that, in part two, we're going to hear from Becky Wade. Becky Wade is a an elite runner, an unbelievable marathoner, 230 marathoner, but she also does quite a bit of writing for a variety of different publications. She recently put out an article in Runner's World as well, no, Runner's World is not sponsoring this episode. It's just, just how it worked out this time. Uh, she recently put out an article uh, detailing the various things and reasons that people uh, are excited about racing again in 2021. So many of us are. And she kind of put people into different kinds of categories. And certainly you can be in more than one. But it was a really an interesting read, and I couldn't wait to dive into it with her. So first we'll hear from Alex, and then we'll hear from Becky. So let's get into it. Hello, Alex, and welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Um, first of all, you're doing, there's so many things that we can talk about. You are now, you, you now um, review shoes for Believe in the Run, which is one of my favorite shoe review sites and spots on the internet. I, I can't get enough people on the show. If they know me at all, they know my affinity for that sort of thing. I, for someone who doesn't buy that many shoes, I, I consume way too much shoe content. Yeah. <laughs> on the internet, YouTube, what have you. Can't wait to get to that later. Uh, you're also an experienced trail runner who's doing amazing things. And recently you put out on, on March 3rd, you put out an article. Um, I wouldn't call it an article necessarily, a post, I guess, on Runner's World, uh, which has gained a lot of traction um, around the community and was just something that connected with a lot of people for a variety of different reasons. So I want to talk about all of this uh, as, as we'll get into it. I guess, um, first things first, let's just talk about the article. So I'll just I'll say the name of it. After years of trauma, running is my home. Here's what I'm doing to make it safer. And then the subtitle is, our community needs to do better to protect all runners. So I guess first things first, what 
caused you to either reach out to Runner's World or for them to reach out to you? To, what was the genesis of the piece? Yeah, so with their Runner's Alliance that they formed um, more recently, I was super drawn to that and the athletes that had shared their stories and come out um, with their stories of harassment and um, just the issues that women and women of color face in running that we don't talk about as much. I would see things here and there. Um, but just to have kind of an organized platform was really interesting to me and really intriguing. And I reached out and talked to one of the editors, um, Taylor Dutch at Runner's World. And she asked me to write an essay, a personal essay about my experiences um, on the trail with harassment and just kind of share my story of how I started with running and where it's taken me. And then just some of those experiences along the way and kind of what I'm doing now, um, kind of looking back at those things and just learning and sharing some information about what I'm doing now and how I'm trying to work locally to just kind of raise awareness around some of these things and um, combat some of it. Yeah, and in the in the essay, um, that's a better way of saying it. Yeah, the essay. Uh, thank you for for, <laughs> for very nicely clarifying what I should be calling it. Um, in that essay, you really go through your life and running in in a sense, and you know, you because of the you know when you're writing for a magazine or, or a website, there are certain constraints that are placed on people from a length perspective. Again, I don't want to speak to what. Numero's World and Taylor and you did in terms of coordinating this, but you got to go through it pretty quickly because there's a lot to get through in kind of a short amount of space and time. Um, and it really and, and it's interesting because it's um, again I'm trying to figure out the right the right jumping off point, but it, there does seem to be this dichotomy of where running for you has reached both ends of the spectrum in terms of its healing properties and the pain that has uh, risen in your life. You know in part because of running or things related to running. So I guess when you were writing this piece and going back and going through the, the parts of your life where you wanted to include and not include, um, when you're going through that and really kind of identifying these parts of your life, were you ever look back and say, wow, I'm surprised that I stuck with running for so long considering all the pain in your life that has been directly or indirectly related to the sport? Yeah. I mean, I think when I was going back, like you said, it was kind of a condensed um, version of a lot of things that happened over the course of my life leading up to this point. And I kind of tried to hit on share enough to make it personal and relatable because I know um, that people struggle with a lot of the things that I struggled with, with eating disorders and depression and trauma. And I think Looking back, I can see the points where I had to take a break from running, where I was forced to due to injury or because of um, issues with some unhealthy issues with um, eating and things like that. But I feel like there was never really a point where I didn't feel like a sh kind of just a break would be enough from it. I never felt like it was something that took so much from me that I couldn't kind of go back to it, I guess. Yeah. And early in the piece, you talk about, you know, assimilation, 
right? So you're you're adopted uh, into your family, and you you talked a little bit about the assimilation process that didn't go well for you, uh, both within the, where you lived and within the family itself. So. Were those topics discussed with you when you were young, or is this just pain or um, things that you felt that were just more internalized? Yeah, so those topics weren't really discussed with me at all. Um, I think my birth parents really didn't have any experience, obviously, in having those conversations. And when you adopt a child from another country, I think um, you're instinct to try to make them feel welcome and make them feel like just they're part of the family and then they're no different as you is kind of the instinct to protect them. But it actually, by covering up those differences and kind of glossing over those things and trying to find all the similar, um, the similarities and the things that make you more like them than you are unique, I feel like is way more harmful than helpful. And this is something that probably just in the past couple of years, I've really took time to think about and reflect on the things that were told to me in terms of if you don't want to be as tan, don't go outside as much or wear long sleeves. And if you kind of implying that I had some kind of control over, like if you do want to look different and you do want to fit in more, here are some things that you can do, I guess. Um, but again, it was just kind of covering up the things that made me who I was and made me look the way I did. Um, but yeah, and I grew up in a really small town, so it's not even now in education, it's not something we talk about. And it was just kind of, I didn't want anything to do with being different little kids. You know, you want to fit in and you want to be like your friends and you don't want any attention really drawn to you. So I did my best to kind of cover up and put a hat on and wear sunglasses and try to go with the flow, I guess. Right. It kind of sounds like there's like a cycle there of like, you know, the family trying to be like, all right, let's, let's just talk about our things that we have in common, not our differences. And then, you know, with you growing up, not wanting to focus on the differences and then it can just kind of can around and around we go a little bit. Yep. Absolutely. So did you know, like, I guess what was the extent that, you were inquisitive of or found out about um, your life before you were adopted or kind of where um, like you were born and the family that you came from? So I didn't know a lot and I still really don't know a lot. Um, I was kind of told a story of like, oh, your birth mother loved you so much and that's why she gave you up because she was so young and couldn't take care of you. And I know that I was left at an orphanage in Seoul, South Korea, um, and I was there for a few months, I'm not exactly sure how long, but I was adopted when I was 11 months old. So I came here um, at 11 months and was just in one orphanage. And um, since then, I've kind of done some research on the orphanage and learned that it was closed down. And I reached out to the woman who was actually um, ran it. And she wasn't she was really reluctant to give much information, so I tried to track her down a couple of times, but really haven't gotten anywhere with that. Um, but yeah, my adoptive family didn't really know many details beyond that, so I was just kind of told. And I'm now learning to through social media and some things where people have formed these groups of Korean adoptees and transracial adoptees, where it's a very common story, and we're kind of told the same thing. So I think a lot is unknown. 
And how did all of this kind of shape your identity um, as a youngster? I think I just kind of stuffed it away and rejected that that was even something. I think it was just like, well, my mom is my mom and my dad is my dad. And I just want, again, it made me different. It made me stand out in a way that I didn't want to. So I never really thought about it. And I almost just kind of resented of like, oh, it's frustrating that I have to even deal with that without thinking about like all the trauma that's involved in just adoption and kind of just growing up where I did. Um, but yeah, I think for me, it was just wanting to be so far away from that identity that I just didn't think about it and tried to ignore that it was part of who I was or where I came from. And at the age of 13, you write that running presented itself to you. And then that basically became a place for you to um, almost like the silo where you would stuff all of the, the pain that you were that you were feeling on the inside. Uh, when you say it was presented to you, how did you come across running? Well, I was given presented, I guess, a couple of options of either I could go for volleyball or I could join the cross country team. And I lacked coordination and still lack a lot of coordination. Um so I figured running might be my best bet, and I had no says, idea about cross country. Says the FKT running trail runner. That, yeah, <laughs> you lack coordination. <laughs> it wasn't pretty. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it was just kind of like, yeah, I guess I'll join cross country, whatever that was. And I had no idea what it was. It sounded weird to me. And I just found out I showed up in my garage sale Asics and just was like, oh, you just run. And I thought it was goofy, but I gave it a shot and ended up being um, – pretty good at it in terms of I just was able to go and keep going further than a lot of my teammates and it felt good and yeah I just kind of immersed myself in it right away yeah can we talk about the feelings associated with running for a little bit um you know you mentioned you know just now that running felt good it was something that you enjoyed and um fast forwarding to like your career now as a runner right you have you know you obviously enjoy the sport. You do it quite a bit. You're, you're out there setting records. You're associated with running in a couple of different ways. Um, so how and when and in what ways did running, you know, kind of transmorph into like something that was enjoyable and things that you liked, but also a place where you were putting your pain and it was an outlet for that and how those two things kind of coordinated with each other? Yeah. So at first I think it was just a place where I could go to get away from everything. I could get away from pressure that I didn't really even, wasn't really processing or thinking about. Um, and then just get away from some stressful situations that were happening when I was growing up and within my family. Um, it was just this place where it was kind of this space that was just mine and no one could take it from me and I could go and it was my experience and I could control how far and how hard I ran or how easy I ran or if I stopped and walked or if I just ran somewhere and then stopped and just sat by myself or had some time. Um, but it ended up being because I, with a lot of ultra runners and runners in general, um, this case of kind of all or nothing where I started to realize like, Oh, I can run further and kept trying to push myself and was kind of all in, in terms of, well, if I want to run faster, I should be lighter. And if I want to run, um, further, I can go maybe be out longer and then kind of sacrifice some other things as results. So then it just kind of became this cycle of, 
this unhealthy cycle of wanting to look a certain way, wanting to feel a certain way, but not really knowing that those things, um, how to attain those things at such a young age. And I think that kind of, kind of the pain and discomfort that I felt around kind of running myself to injury and to an unhealthy weight, I didn't recognize as bad pain because it was just a different kind of pain. Um, but yeah, I think again, it was a lot of a control thing where I kind of got to decide the terms of that. Yeah. And obviously this is different for every person. Uh, so painting with a broad brush can be, um, a fool's errand in a way, but the, the folks who I have talked to both on the podcast and just in life who have experienced eating disorders, disordered eating in a way who are also, um, who are also runners and not that they have to be necessarily, mm -hmm. um, control seems to be a common theme for a lot of them. Um, as you work through, um, your disordered eating over, over years and now reflect on it, um, during that time, do that something that, that comes up quite a bit in terms of doing when you do your own research on, on that topic and people who have gone through similar things that you've gone through? Yeah, I see that as kind of an underlying theme of feeling out of control in some way or experiencing um, a different kind of trauma and then kind of finding that that's a, something they can control and finding almost some relief in that. And going back to, you know, again, when you were a teenager, running becomes a big part of your life. You're obviously spending a lot of time doing it. Um, what was the situation at home like in terms of like, um, you know, your folks, you know, either supporting you within running or, you know, being advocates for you, you being involved in sports and things like that. Like, what was that situation like? Yeah. So my relationship with my parents is tricky, but, um, overall at that time it was, they were supportive. They thought it was great that I found something. Um, they would always be really proud of how far I went and they would always, think it's funny when they were driving home from work and would see me like 10 miles away on our old country road. Um, <laughs> and they would like call the neighbors ahead of time because we lived out in the country and there are a lot of dogs who would chase me and try to rip my arm off. And <laughs> they would call the neighbors ahead of time and say that Alex is going to go on a five mile run past your house and she's going to be there in about 40 minutes. Can you make sure your dog's inside? <laughs> so <laughs> they would do um, things like that. But they thought it was good and they recognized pretty quickly when it started to become, um, not healthy for me and were, and that's when I started to just kind of hide those things and learned kind of how to operate kind of in the background in terms of the disordered eating and some of the things that I would do, um, because they started to see me lose weight and they started to see my track coach, would reached out and talked about um, the injuries that I was having and things like that. And so, yeah, they started to intervene when things got um, pretty visibly unhealthy. And that seems to be a tricky thing. Um, I'd love to hear your opinions looking back on it now uh, when people try to intervene with a runner or any individual who's going through something like that, because it, it seems to be hard, a hard thing to be supportive and yet also trying to like instigate change in the behavior without pushing people away. Or like you mentioned, like you, you kind of like went secretive 
uh, about it in a sense, um, to try to hide, to hide, try to hide the behavior. Um, it just seems like such a tricky thing on both sides. Um, looking back on it now, like, what, 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 if someone's saying in a situation where they know someone or they have a loved one who's going through something similar that, that you went through, you know, what are, what are some things that can be done? Cause it, it does, it seems like a very hard thing to approach. Yeah, it's very complex and very complicated. And I feel like they're, um, with my situation, I can only speak to that, but, um, it was, a lot of the issues that I had were the result of them and the way they treated me. So in a more healthy environment and situation, I think that just watching for those warning signs in terms of an obsession um, with a scale and weight. And there are a lot of resources um, that like the national eating disorder association put out around education and kind of warning signs, but I think, yeah, I think it's complicated. I think each situation is pretty unique um, and kind of given, it kind of depends on what those underlying causes are. But yeah, it is easy to kind of drive someone into um, just getting better at hiding some of those things too when you do approach it. So yeah, I don't really have a great answer for that except for just, awareness and education and read about people's lived experiences and um, do the research. And there are a lot of really great resources out there now and groups and people who share stories. Um, And there are some, definitely some common threads through those. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, you kind of go through, you know, in this essay, you kind of go through different periods where we kind of right now have touched on the kind of the overlapping period of when you started running and it became a big part of your life. And then um, the disordered eating kind of, you know, filters in and then that becomes, you know, a major thing for you. And even in college, it seems to, at least in the essay, it seems where that was, if not the, um, I, don't know, the I don't know the exact right words for it, but it seems like that's, it's presented almost as that was kind of the apex of the disordered eating um, during that time. What were the steps that you took ultimately to, to, to start living a healthier lifestyle. We don't have to talk about like all the, the negative things that happened um, in part because you've already written about them. People should go read the piece. Um, but ultimately what were some of the things that you um, did to set yourself up for success and to move past some of the things that were at that point, um, you know, hurting you and, and from you know, mentally and emotionally were, were really weighing on you. Yeah, I think in college I had so many injuries that I didn't really have a choice but to step away and take a break from running. Um, I started to increase mileage and started to run marathons and half marathons after college or after high school. And I think I was just running so much and not doing it in a sustainable way because I didn't know how to. I didn't have resources. I didn't have a coach. I didn't have um, mentors who were telling me kind of how to approach it or what to do. So I was just kind of making it up as I went. And I think that my tendency to kind of overdo most things followed me there. And I dealt with so many injuries that I ended up just being kind of forced to take a break from it. Um, I think it was just kind of a natural thing where I just didn't really have a choice anymore. And that's kind of also what started me really interested, um, getting interested in trail running too, because it slowed you down and you didn't go as far and it just, well, slowed me down a lot. But, um, 
it's just, it was easier on my body and was just kind of a different form of running. It was like starting something new. So. And did you um, also seek support from others? I mean, you mentioned in the piece that you do, you do work with a therapist now um, going back to that age group, were there other people that, that helped you through, um, you know, some, some of the things that were affecting you? I didn't really have um, or like resources or people who I talked to about running and any of those issues at that time. No. Okay. And nothing with like the disordered eating and things like that. No, I didn't talk to anyone about that either. I, all through college, that was still something that I kept um, from friends and from people who were close to me and still struggled with that a lot. Our next partner has a product that I use literally every day. I started taking Athletic Greens because I heard other podcasters who were really into performance and athletics, people like Rich Roll and Tim Ferriss, who used it all the time. And I thought, hey, man, if they're going to use it, then I should too. And I'm so glad that I did. So what's in this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens, all to help you start your day the right way. The special blend of ingredients support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, literally all the things. I mean, there's too many things for me to list. I actually have to like take a pause during the sentence, uh, but it's, it's legit and I'm so glad that I use it. I use it basically because I know that Getting my vitamins and minerals from from foods is probably the best way to do it. But I usually just don't have the kind of diet and make the kind of food choices that's going to put myself in the optimum position. And that's why I take Athletic Greens to make sure that I have everything I need because I know I'm probably not getting it from foods because I just don't quite have the, the discipline or the food choices that I need. And Athletic Greens is there to help me out. And I'm so glad that they are. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash rambling runner to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutrition insurance. Hey, everybody, do you want to save money on your grocery bill? Well, every plate is 25% cheaper than grocery shopping. Try America's Best Value Meal Kit for planning dinners today. I love every plate for a couple of different reasons. First of all, I just love having things in my kitchen, especially in my refrigerator, that isn't the same old thing that I do every single week. Also, getting things that aren't too adventurous that my kids are definitely going to eat. Obviously, you're never going to beat that a thousand with that. But with every plate, my kids have really enjoyed it. And I like the food as well. And it's just not the same stuff every single week, which can get tiring. So you can choose between 17 recipes that change each week, swap proteins and sides for things that you like, so you can switch up your dinner routine however you want. And that's the key thing. It's however you want. There's so many options, and it's all great stuff, which is also huge. For me, the difference between this and some of the other uh, services in this genre are, first of all, the price. It's absolutely fantastic. We'll get to it in a second. The kinds of meals that are provided, that they're really good, but not too adventurous, have also been a huge thing for me. And now I've been using these more often now that groceries have kind of gone up and the price for every plate has pretty much stayed the same. 
So try every plate today. It's $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RAMBLINGRUNNER179. That stands for $1.79 per meal. So get started with every plate, like I said, for $1.79 per meal by going to everyplate.com and entering code RAMBLINGRUNNER179. Seven nine today. That's up to a hundred and four dollar value. So after the injuries stopped being an issue for you, and you were able to get back into running, or that became an option for you, I should say. Um, what, what what made you want to get back into it? I mean, at that point, you've been having such. Um, at that point, it seems like your running career. And please correct me if I'm wrong. It, seems, it, it comes across as if there were more negatives than positives at that point. So what made you want to continue running? Obviously maybe in a different way, but you know, you do have a lot of options in terms of how you want to spend your time. Why did running persist as being something in your life? I think it's because through all of that, there were definitely moments where um, I think I, through the whole, that whole time just had a lot of respect for it and what it could offer me. And I think I had plenty of those moments and those runs and those periods where I was training, where running, was good for me. And I was, it wasn't like I highlighted definitely a lot of the negative times, but there were a lot of, um, moments where, you know, what running can do for you in terms of how good it feels and how freeing it is. And despite all of the negative things and the times where I kind of took more from my body than it had to give and pushed it too far. I think that those moments that running felt really good and that I was um, approaching it in a healthy way. Um, I knew it was possible and I knew that feeling was possible. And I think that's really where, when I got off the roads and just slowed down and started to really reflect on where I enjoyed running and the spaces I enjoyed um, just kind of being out was on the trails. And I think that helps me a lot to go back to it and to establish a more healthy relationship it, with it and with myself. And that's also where I found um, the trail running community too, which I never was part of a running group or besides the cross country team in high school. Um, I never had a group of friends that I ran with on the roads and I never belonged to any group or anything like that. So trail running was really the first time that I was, found a lot of people who had um, were open about their history of struggles with mental health and addiction. And I thought it was really freeing where I could just be myself. And it was these, this group who were um, really open about the struggles that they have had and felt um, welcoming. Now, leading up to that, were you someone who would share your struggles with other people? Now, I mean, we talked a little bit about like, right, do you, do you work with a therapist or things like that? But just from like, a family or, or friend's perspective, and I think we've talked about the family probably enough at this point, but from a friend's perspective, up until this point that you just mentioned, had you sh- were you a share about some of this stuff or was this all internalized? Yeah, I didn't share any of this stuff. I People I lived with didn't know that I was struggling with um, eating disorders and in conversations now kind of looking back and um, now they talk about it and we can have conversations about it where they kind of knew and could see things, but no, I didn't talk about this stuff until, um, yeah, until kind of that transition into the trail running community. And I didn't really notice, I didn't take time to reflect on it either. I didn't realize like, 
oh, running became an unhealthy addiction. And I didn't think of it that way. I just thought like, oh, these are things that happened to me and like, whatever, it's not that big of a deal. But then the more I heard stories about um, people struggling with eating disorders and struggling with running in the relationship with running, it was just kind of inspiring and really spoke to me uh, in terms of that's some of these stories were very in line with my experiences. And that's kind of when I started to open up about some of the things because just for the hope of relating to someone and having someone having that speak to someone else. And how did that process of opening up to you know your your local running community? And I mean community was kind of the small C, not like the the the, the, the everyone who ran in your area or anything like that. But uh, opening up to those people that you trusted and, and were probably it sounds like opening up to you as well and talking open and honestly about things that they've gone through or or were currently feeling. How did that affect you? Uh, not merely as an athlete, but just also as a person. I think it just made me realize that there's so many things that we just don't talk about and we stigmatize and with more and more female athletes opening up about um, being sexually harassed or dealing with eating disorders or dealing with injury even, and just being open about those things. It's just makes me feel really grateful for the community and also empowered to just keep being honest about things. And I shared a lot of, pretty negative things that happened in my life, um, in that essay. But I, and then since then I've had people reach out and share things about their experiences with running or their experiences with just one part of my story and them talking about how they've never been able to really talk about it or really think about it. And I think it just, the more we do that, it raises awareness about the issues and it raises awareness about, um, how it really is a community issue and something that is a shared involves a shared solution um, to address related to harassment and anti-racism. But yeah, it's just empowering to hear those things and then to just see other people speak up and share. Cause I think the awareness piece is just such a huge part of it. You mentioned the people reaching out to you and sharing their experiences Um you know, when they, when they after, read, after reading your piece and just feeling the need to, you know, express themselves to you after uh, after experiencing um, uh, what you had written. Is that one of the things that you were hoping for when you in Runner's World finally pressed publish on that article? I have to believe and again, maybe wrongfully so. I have to believe that moment that that thing went live, that there must have been like this, like. It must have been, I don't know if it was a sense of anxiety, but like that must have been a, a really interesting moment in your life. Like, oh my gosh, I just pressed publish on this and like, I don't know how this is going to be received. I'm really opening up here. And this is not something that you mentioned that you had done for the vast majority of your life. Yeah. And it was such a long process of editing and um, just kind of everything that went into it, that it was a big buildup. And then I think I got to that point and then I felt kind of exhausted by it <laughs> and just the timing of everything else that was going on that I kind of felt like, Oh, I don't, that was a lot. And I kind of went back and reread the article and I think I kind of separated myself from how much I did share. <laughs> and then when I started getting messages of like, wow, that was so personal and all of these things, I was like, Oh, was it? And then I would read through it again. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that um, I think I kind of, again, just kind of separated myself from the amount that I put out there, but it's a byproduct. Um, people reach out and 
want to talk about things and share their stories and relate. And um, I'm grateful for that. And what's it like having this come out? I mean, you mentioned this was a long process. So it's not as if like you send in the first draft and you knew, hey, this is going to be published May on you know March 30th. You know, like put it in pen. Um, but the fact that it is coming out while we've had a resurgence of anti-Asian hate crimes going on around the country, again, not to say that that's something new necessarily, but we are experiencing a resurgence of this. What's it like having this come out during that period of time in terms of um, the outreach you've received in response to the piece? Yeah, to be honest, it was, I feel like the timing was good. I also felt like it almost kind of as I grapple with my own issues around identity and kind of where I fit into this, um, what's going on and like the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of my place in anti-racism work and all of that, it felt a little scary at first. Like, oh, I'm putting myself out there and really identifying as an Asian female and what does that mean? And does that mean that people are going to see me differently or am I going to get messages about this speaking out um, or am I going to get negative backlash? So I did that definitely crossed my mind um, because I've seen how people um, are coming out about getting messages just on Instagram and social media about um, like hateful messages and anti-Asian um, messages, things like that. But I feel like the timing overall was good. Caroline Yang, who is the photographer who um, I worked with for the shoot for this piece, said something that kind of stuck with stuck with me, and it was that people need to see you. They need to see Asian women, and they need to see an Asian female, and kind of paired with this story. So, so far, it's been pretty positive. Um, and I definitely have had some comments of like, oh, just run. That's not a community issue. Your issue isn't our issue, things like that. And I get it because I wrote about it even in the article about I would love to just run. And most people would love to just run and not worry about any of this stuff. That would be ideal, <laughs> um, which is why I wrote it. But, um, yeah, I think the timing is good. And I think the more stories around things that happen locally and it's opened people's eyes around um, even my local community and people I grew up with about this affected me my whole life and um, it still does. So I think it's good and people are doing things like taking bystander awareness trainings and just kind of understanding that it could just be as simple as saying a comment of that's not cool. And when you're in a friend group who is saying these things or if microaggressions happen, um, so yeah, I see a lot of good change and some a lot of positive things that have come out of it that way. Well, thank you for putting it out there. Uh, I know it must not have been easy for anybody, especially someone who has been reticent to do things like that uh, for the vast majority of their life. Uh, it seems like a huge step to take and to put yourself out there in such a way. So thank you for doing it because uh, I think it, it, it is very important. And thank you for coming on to talk about it so open and honestly. Um, I really appreciate it. So I do want to talk to you about running shoes <laughs> because I can't help myself. 
Um, and you do work for, you do do running shoe reviews for Believe in the Run. I do want to get there. I also want to give you an opportunity if we haven't touched on something yet that you did want to make sure that we addressed or explored. Um, please let me know and we, we, we can touch on that, that, on that first. No, let's get to shoes. <laughs> okay. Let's get to shoes. All right. So you are, um, one of the, the new people who've been joined the Believe in the Run group. Uh, this coming year, uh, people, if you listen to this show, if you don't know Believe in the Run, we have had some people on here who do work at Believe in the Run. They're one of the best places online to get shoe reviews. They're also on YouTube and they have really thoughtful pieces uh, about shoes and you do a great job. You're also an avid trail runner. So I got to talk to you about trail shoes because so many folks during the, this COVID time have morphed or gone more into trails than in the past, either to kind of get away from folks or because there's no races, they want to try something new, the monotony of running the roads. I can't just do this forever without races. I need to try something <laughs> that I haven't done before. Um, anyway, it seems like a lot of people are going to the trails than they had in the past. However, there can be a big difference between trail shoes and road shoes and big differences within um, in the different kinds of trail shoes that someone can get. So now that all the 2021 shoes are pretty much in the marketplace now or about to be released, what are some of the shoes that you really enjoy and what do you use them for specifically uh, within the scope of trail running? So I spend a lot of time on the Superior Hiking Trail, which is a really rocky, technical kind of mess. Most of the time it's a little muddy, um, but we're working on some of those issues. But I really like the Hoka Speed Goat because I like um, the cushion, the midsole, the outsole is great for technical. It grips well on the rocks when it gets wet and muddy. And I love the cushion that it provides for the multi-day events too. Because um, if you're going to be on your feet all day, you have to have a, sh a comfortable shoe that allows your foot to swell a little and that protects it from the underfoot, from all the roots and rocks and whatever you're um, going to be spending your day on. But yeah, that's my favorite one. And everything about it just works so well. I've tried a lot of different shoes in the past. And um, as far as stiffness and just the stack height, it's all great. It's like a stable, in my opinion, perfect um kind of package. So that's the one I've been going, I've been um, running out West in and here locally on all the trails. All right. So let's talk about this because the, this is the thing that I, that I, um I can see there'd be certain people who would, you know, go on completely different ends of the spectrum, right? When I hear technical trails, I live in the Northeast and like, Everything around me, like, I think would be described as technical, as, as pretty technical. Like, it's super rocky, roots everywhere. It's like someone with weak ankles. It's like my nightmare, right? Running on some of these trails. I try to do it anyway because it is fun. Um, but it can be a harrowing experience to say the least. So when I've run in shoes that kind of have a higher stack height, maybe a little bit less nimble, I feel like this complete loss of control as opposed to like having maybe lower stack height. And, you know, being more connected to the ground where it feels like I'm a little more nimble, a little more like able to kind of maneuver myself. But at the same time, you bring up some, some great points about like, hey, it can help for this and that. Maybe you get a rock plate in there 
Um, you didn't mention that specifically, but I know there are certain issues that have rock plates that can help with technical trail running. So how do you, how, it seems like there's so many factors, right? So how do you judge some of that? And why would say like a bigger and less flexible shoe work better for you than maybe something lighter to the, lighter or lower to the ground, um, would in maybe a similar situation? Yeah, I can relate to that stack height issue of when you roll your ankle on these, you roll it hard because <laughs> it's a yes. ways to the ground. Um, but because it's such a stable shoe, it doesn't happen um, as much. I feel like I've ran more recently in the Yushan 2. It's the 361 degree Yushan 2. Um, and it's a lot more flexible. And I actually had a lot. I had a really good time in them up to a point where taking it on a longer run, I started to get sore metatarsals because it was a little more flexible for me and not quite what I was used to. It didn't have quite enough underneath. And I actually found that I rolled my foot even, or rolled my ankle even more um, in that one. And I have notoriously kind of weak ankles. So it's sidelined me quite a bit from different races where I've had to drop out or had my ankle swell up to the size of my head. So Oh God! <laughs> so, do you wear anything to protect your ankles besides, you know, the, besides just the shoes that you're wearing? Yeah. Well, my more recently, um, my coach sent me this. It's just like a compression little sock, ankle sock. Um, this link to, I think it's Bauer F- Sports or Bauerfield Sports. I don't know who it is, but it's like this ankle compression sleeve that does um, a wrap. It's like the kind of standard ankle wrap for someone who's had their ankle wrapped a lot. I don't really know what they do, but um, it's either that or KT tape sometimes to just stabilize things. But for the most part, I've been trying to do more ankle stability exercises and all those things that I know I um, will help. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. I got, I got, I got a whole library of ankle stabilization, ankle stabilizing exercises yeah. um, that I don't do. Yep. <laughs> but, but I can certainly relate to that. Okay, so when you are on more like buffed out trails, right, or like things that are fairly smooth, it certainly would still be considered a trail because it wouldn't be the road necessarily, but certainly not something that's technical, right? Something that's pretty nice. Like maybe it's like the local town, you know you know, manicures it or something like that. So it's a pretty nice spot. It's nice and easy on the legs, but it's not trail running like through the woods type situation. What kind of shoes would you um, gravitate towards in that situation? Um, Hoka Speed Goat. <laughs> the same I, one. I am a very... The silver bullet solution. I the Hoka honestly, Speed Goat. <laughs> believe in, the people who believe in the run are probably going to be like, come on, we sent you so many shoes to review. <laughs> But I am very all or nothing. And if I find a shoe that works and doesn't cause blisters and doesn't have some weird flex point, I wear it everywhere. I wear that thing on the roads. <laughs> oh, you wear it on the roads? I do, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Not for long runs, but I have worn the Hoka Speed Goat on like runs down the Mississippi River on the bike path because it just it works. I just run in the grass. Um, really, though, like my road shoe right now is the Hoka Mach 4. And the Hoka Rincon, they've been really fun to run in, nice and light. Um, so if I do longer stuff on the road, I do wear an appropriate shoe, for the record. <laughs> I'll say, I have worn the Hoka. To- this is not a Hoka-sponsored podcast for anyone who's <laughs> no. wondering if there's about to be a Hoka ad. Um, this is not SpawnCon either. Um, so I have the Hoka Torrent 1, 
So I got that on sale and I like it. And it's actually one of the few Hoka shoes that actually fit me well. Because for me, the midfoot is so tight, especially in the Rincon, where like if you take the insole out and people who are listening to this will not see my hand gestures here, but basically it's almost like a barbell where it's like the toes up here and then it goes really close together in the midfoot and then kind of comes back out for the heel. It's one of the craziest insoles I've ever seen. You compare it to other ones where like the midfoot on most, you know, the, on the midfoot on most shoes and the insole, that's like the widest part because it kind of overhangs the medial ridge on the outsole. Whereas like for some of these Hoka shoes, it doesn't. And like, I can feel that line of the outsole in my arch and it pinches. And it's like, I have narrow feet. Like this is not like I have Sasquatch feet and I can't fit into shoes. I have narrow feet that's like in the past has like been a sticking point in buying shoes, right? Like I couldn't wear Adidas basketball shoes growing up because like I would tie them up and the eyelets would connect. Right. <laughs> Overlapping. Right? Yeah, exactly. So it's funny. I'm like, how am I having this problem? Like I have the narrowest foot of anyone I know. And it's interesting that I, I know there's some people who love Hocus so much. And I feel like I'm on an island. I'm like the only one experiencing this problem. Um, does this resonate with you at all? Or am I just, again, am I just on, on my own island here? I don't know. I haven't had issues with them. Um, probably five years ago, I used to get the Hoka blister, I would call it. And it was on the arch of my foot because I would have that same sensation and it would just push and no matter how much because I wanted to like them and wear them so badly at that time. But it would give me the same issue. I haven't experienced it in the more recent models. Um, yeah, and I have a pretty narrow foot, too. Okay. So I guess you are on your there you go. So I just, just have to figure it out, I guess. So um, the, the torrent, the torrent doesn't quite have, it. it's narrow. Like I really have to like, if you, you compare like how I lace up my, all my shoes and you just have pictures of them all laced up, the torrent would be like three times like more across. In terms of like the eyeless, <laughs> yeah. It's like a huge space between the eyeless. Like I almost like run out of shoelace. Um, but I do like those shoes. So I should say, I, I do like the Hokator and they do have a nice good grip, but lower stack height and certainly more flexible than the speed go. I did wear them funny. I did wear them for like mile repeats on the road one time. And my coach almost like, he could not believe it. I did this. <laughs> but it was like one of those days where like, and you grew up in Minnesota, you know what it's like. There's salt on the road. Oh, yeah. It's just snowed. Like the side of the road is gross. Yep. It's and like a trail. Like, I'm, <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm better off wearing these shoes. I'm just be sliding all over the place if I don't. Um, and they're fairly light. They're like nine ounces for like a, a normal men's size. So it was, um, I felt like a, a decent move. But you no, know, I, I do like them. Do you have any shoes that you're testing out now? Um, not now, actually. There was a big kind of pileup. I just got done with the Yushantu and the Hoka Mafadi and um, a couple of the Las Bertivas. Oh, so it's pronounced Mafadi? I always wonder how that it word is pronounced. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Because <laughs> that looks like it's a really thick midsole. Yeah, it's a really thick midsole, and it's an it's pretty stiff, and it feels good, but um, the upper doesn't feel as secure to me as the Speed Goat. My foot slides around a little bit. I have trouble getting that one tight enough without having to tighten really tight across the top of my feet, which I really don't like because then I have other issues. So kind of working with that one, breaking that one in and seeing how it'll work. But So have you tried the Brooks Catamount? I have not. Okay. Nope. Yeah. It, it sounds like when you talk about all the things that you love about trail shoes, it doesn't look it doesn't sound like it checks any of the boxes. <laughs> but I had to ask because I do know I, I have friends who like, you know, I was talking to my friend the other day. He's he's bought he has now purchased three pairs. What is it? The Brooks 
Brooks Catamount. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's basically like they have a shoe like the Hyperion Tempo, which is like a road shoe, and the Catamount is basically like the trail version of it. So it's their DNA Flash midsole, oh, which sure. is the one that's like in their super shoe. So it's like the DNA Flash midsole, but like with like the grip on the bottom and and the in the upper that's kind of more trail appropriate. But I think it's more like also one of those shoes where um, they call them convertibles. Or then they call them something else. Like the, the you can basically you could wear you could basically wear them if you were to run to the trail. Right. It wouldn't be too clunky the on the road. Trail, yeah. Where you would have to like I don't have to drive to the trail because I can't run in my. I mean, it's probably, it doesn't sound like it's a problem for you, but for the uh, for those other people who don't want to run on the roads in their trail <laughs> shoes, uh, it does kind of solve that for problem. For people not wearing like. a speed goat. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for everything you're doing in the running community and in your local trail community as well. Um, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was great. Becky Wade Firth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk with you. This is kind of a new thing that we're doing. I don't know how long I can say new thing because it's now the third <laughs> week in a row that we're doing this. Uh, we had Sarah Lawrence Butler. We've had David Roach. And now we have you. Um, I had a listener to the show finally came up with a, a good quality name for the segment. Usually I'm pretty good at naming things. I could not name this for the life of me. Let me run it by you. I did not tell you this before we before we press record. So we'll get your, your uh, in-the-moment reaction. He said... A potential good name for this segment could be Running Between the Lines. Ooh, I like that. I liked it, too. I was like, all right, this is a winner. This is the gut feeling on it. Yeah, nice. All right. So you recently put an article over on Runner's World, um, and the title is, make sure I get the title and the subtitle, Thinking About Racing Again, Here's How to Approach Your Big Comeback, Consider Why You Race, Oh, sorry. Consider why you race. Those reasons play a big role in deciding when to lace up again. So, first of all, thank you for putting this together. I think racing is now on people's minds like it hasn't been over the past year, not only because more races are popping up, but people can really see them coming along the way. And people want to make sure that they're preparing themselves, both mentally and physically, to begin racing again. So let's just talk about timing. What about this time period, you know, put this kind of article or this kind of post uh, on on your radar? Yeah, kind of like you said, a lot of people, a lot of conversations in the running world right now are centered on, you know, is it kind of time to start thinking about racing again? Things seem to be improving, Um, you know, vaccinations are going out and races are increasing, it seems, by the week. And so a lot of people are kind of starting to think, well, you know, when do I, when is it time for me to get back out there Um, if they haven't already? So just talking with my editor, that was a topic that we both agreed was pretty important right now to just kind of help guide runners' decisions based on, you know, the way that they want to think about their next race. And, um, you know, I I think I had six categories in there of the type, you know, type of runner that maybe is going to be thinking about uh, returning to racing. And like we talked about just before you started recording, there's probably 10 times that amount if we wanted to really get detailed about it. Um, but those, those categories kind of just emerged naturally from the people that I started talking to. And so those were the ones that I kind of stuck with, um, at least in, for this article. 
Right. And I encourage anyone who's interested to go read this piece over on Runners where we're not going to like basically detail the whole piece. <laughs> you should go over there and read it. Uh, it is really well done. Uh, when you're creating a piece like this, when you have different topics and you have people in mind to talk to, do you what's what's the coordination of kind of the, the chicken and egg scenario of you have different topics or you start talking to people and then that generates the topics, meaning within this piece, like you have the six different categories about why people are racing or how it kind of fits into their lives. What would, from a chicken and egg perspective, how did you approach uh, creating those categories and how people might fit into them? Yeah. So it always works in both directions. I, I normally start out an article with some idea of basically like the global picture that I want to present to the reader. But as far as what that's going to look like and what my different sources are going to, you know, bring up, there's no telling until I start talking. So I typically start with, you know, an outline, maybe some general categories or like subsections to include. And then I always think about, or very early on, early on in the process, I always think about who might be interesting to talk to this. And sometimes that's, I'm trying to talk to as many like Olympic level athletes as possible. Sometimes it's, you know, trying to be more on the recreational end. And this, for this one, it was a mix because, you know, pretty much all runners race. And so I thought it was important to have a mixed perspective. Um, and I would say about half of the categories that I drafted early on stuck and the other half were replaced by better answers um, given to me by the people that I talked to. So I, I try not to be too rigid as far as my expectations. Um, and I've definitely made the mistake plenty of times before where I'll have an article in mind, I'll draft up the introduction, I'll do some interviews. And by the time, by the time I have all of the answers back in and I've talked to everyone, the article looks a lot different than what I expected it to be. So I, it, I basically have to rewrite everything I've done before because the message that I want to send has changed. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I try to be as open as I can. And I, I'm fortunate that I have so many, you know, so many runners uh, that are willing to talk of all levels and, um, you know, that are just happy to share their experiences. And so I can really lean on them. Uh, almost all of my articles use between, I don't know, three to six sources. Sometimes they're, sometimes they're driven by my experiences, but when possible, I like to bring other people in. And we should say you're a professional runner. You are an elite runner who's done very, very well. I'd love to get you back on this show to talk about your experiences <laughs> at a later date because you also have a fantastic book. You have a wide array of experience, wide array of experiences, and we'll touch on how you're doing kind of near the end of this segment. Um, but you're you're very familiar with a lot of people in the elite running space. So some of the people you chose in this piece, you have Don Grunigal, you have Parker Stinson, you have Caitlin uh, Greg Goodman. With knowing so many people, how do you then decide which people to contact for which piece? And I guess, obviously, specifically this one. Well, um, you know, I there's a number of different ways that I kind of look at that. First, I guess I have a big picture of all my running connections. I don't have like a spreadsheet or anything, but basically in my head, I have a mental spreadsheet. And I don't I try to not overdo any one person, even though, you know, they're there are some people who are super good at responding and they always give great answers and I know them well. And I feel like I could, I could use them way more often, but I don't want to take advantage of anyone and like, you know, abuse their time. So I do try to mix it up. Um, and then for articles like this, when I'm looking for different perspectives, I, I typically just think like 
I'll, I'll just send some kind of general questions to a few people that I'm thinking about. And for example, like Parker came into this because I sent him a text saying, hey, I'm writing an article looking for someone who, um, you know, only likes to race when they're 100% like got any ideas. Kind of thinking, you know, that's kind of Parker sounding, but not wanting to like put those words in his mouth. And he immediately responded, uh, yeah, that's me. Do you want to talk? And so um, just knowing. Here you, know, you are giving up your secrets. Now, Parker might hear this and be like, oh, man, she played me she knew the whole time. <laughs> oh, he knows. He knows. Um, and so I think it just comes down to being curious and then, um, you know, not not trying to stereotype or judge, but just from the relationships that I've built through running, you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on like, uh, some different approaches and different styles that the runners I know take. All right. So let's talk about, let's just bring up what the categories are. Again, we're not going to rewrite. We're not going to have you basically retell the article. <laughs> we want people to go read it. Um, but it is interesting. All right. We have the, if you race to stay motivated group, you have the, if you race to capitalize on a good opportunity, See, if you race when you feel the itch, if you race your way to full fitness, if you race to run fast, place high, or crush a big goal, which is the one you just mentioned about Parker, and if you race when you feel ready to have, or sorry, when you, if you race when you feel ready to brave a big crowd, um, which was with uh, Caitlin Gray Goodman, who this is like her field of study, and, and from a professional standpoint, she's not only a professional runner, but this is also um, her work as well. She graduated uh, from Brown um, with uh, basically this sort of topic in mind. So you have all of these things. You're going through this as a runner, someone who's coming back from injury, who, just like the rest of us, you're probably excited to race as well. Where did you kind of fit in into these various categories? If you could like part, like if you could like separate it out, like, all right, I'm 60% in this one and 25% in that one. Or maybe there's ones that you relate to that weren't included in the article. Yeah, I'm not sure how how specific I can get, um, but I'm definitely hybrid. I think everyone is a hybrid, but, you know, for the purpose of this article, it just made sense to kind of separate by neat categories. But um, if I had it my way, I think I would always always race when I'm totally ready and like in PR shape and running workouts as good as or better than ever before. But uh, my coach has long ago nixed that idea that like it's not a healthy approach. And, you know, the more pressure I put on any one race is not necessarily a, a good thing, uh, especially for me. Like I think a lot of runners are pretty perfectionistic and like, like to have their ducks in a row. And so it, it is good for me to, to race when I'm not super sharp. Um, and so I do that. Um, I like to kind of like Molly also, I like to race often and kind of know that there's improvement to be made over weeks and months. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm never going to start racing when I'm super out of shape, uh, but I like to be at least decently in shape and have a bunch of races ahead and have an end goal in sight so that, you know, I'm not like freaking out by a not awesome result early on. Um, another requisite for me is just being healthy. And um, I'm, I'm fortunate in that in my pro career, I've really been healthy almost the whole time until this last year, I've just had an annoying Achilles issue that's kind of plagued me off and on the whole time. But, um, you know, I, I don't like to have, sometimes it's inevitable. Like, let's say I'm 
in at the end of a three month build up for a marathon and something pops up, I'm not going to pull out of the race until I, you know, unless I knew it was something serious, but I really don't like to have anything on my calendar when I'm injured or coming back from an injury. I just feel like it like forces a timeline too much and puts me at risk of overtraining or, you know, getting re-injured. So I would say racing when I'm pretty fit, uh, having several races on my calendar is good. Um, being totally healthy. And then in the current circumstances, it is important for me uh, to be vaccinated before I get in a big crowd. And that's especially so because, um, you know, I've, I've gotten to see my family a little bit. They're all in Texas, but my husband and I have driven down and we have three little nieces and nephews. And I just, you know, it's not worth it to me to jeopardize any of their health. And so fortunately, um, you know, the vaccination stuff is underway. So I think I will hopefully check off those criteria here. I don't know, hopefully this summer. Now, what was the differences that you found talking to the elite runners versus the more recreational runners? We should say everyone in the article is very fast. <laughs> so even the recreational runners are extremely speedy. Um, but with that said, there can be a difference in terms of the races that I wouldn't say are available to certain categories of runners, but maybe they'd be more attracted to, right? Like you're not going to have yourself or Parker Stinson say going to like the local you know, turkey trot 5K in your town. Right. Whereas someone like myself might be more inclined to go to something like that. And those things can often be, as we've seen, so many people have seen, I've actually signed up for a couple myself. Those are coming back quicker than some of the more high profile races, in which cases maybe some are elite only. But you see the the more down home type races are coming back a little bit. It seems to be coming back a little bit faster than some of the the big name events. Yeah. First of all, I'm not above a good old turkey trot. (laughs) My my I'm running. Sorry. I, I'm sorry for saying something. I should not have done <laughs> no, that. No, no, no. It's fine. I, I I understand what you're saying, and I, I'm sure plenty of runners maybe kind of save themselves for the big the big stages. But um, no, the the local turkey trot and jingle bell run and those kind of things are where I really got my start in running. So I will I will always have a soft <laughs> spot in my heart for those. Um, but you know, as far as a, the the difference, I I don't I don't know that there's like uh a concrete difference in the way that elite and non-elite runners approach racing. Um, I mean, one thing that has to be taken into consideration is that there's a lot, you know, a lot less pressure on people who are not doing it as their careers. Um, so, you know, to like race a bunch and, um, or not, not race at all. You know, if someone doesn't race for two years that has no ramifications on whether they'll be accepted into future races or, you know, things like that. So, Um, I think there's just a little bit more flexibility and freedom with people who are not doing it for their jobs, but the way that, you know, they train and prepare and get excited for races, I think is the exact same. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so there, within these categories, there are certain things that, um, maybe pertain to certain people differently, especially in terms of coming back into the racing scene that so many of us have been a part of have been apart from over the past year or so, right? There's certain people in certain of these categories who, you know, they have, Hey, I just want to run, or I just like to race, right? Like there's that, that, that group of people who obviously are really excited. You have the other folks who I'm only going to race when I'm perfectly healthy, when I want to set a PR, when there's this great opportunity that I want to make the most of. And those people in those situations, I feel like can put a lot of pressure on themselves 
to reach a certain standard, no matter their fitness level, uh, when that race day does come along. So as someone who has raced many times and, and has been, been part of some, some really big races, what would be kind of your, your guidance to those folks who they haven't raced in a while, but now they have something that's huge that they're trying to tackle and maybe their first race back in a long time. How can those people be kind of set up for success when they haven't and really kind of put themselves in a race day situation, which for most people is not just like another hard workout, right? It, it's something that's separate from that and a little bit different than that. I think that's important to set expectations appropriately. Um, you know, it's reasonable to expect you to go into your first race in over a year and to maybe fall a little bit short of where you think you should land or to feel extra uncomfortable in the race, um, feel extra nervous, to doubt yourself more. And that's all things that will, you know, go away with practice or get a little bit easier. Um, so I think there are definitely things you can do to, to make it a little bit smoother when you're returning to racing, such as, like I mentioned in the article, like run time trials, or, you know, maybe do a kind of like a head to head race with a friend or a training partner. Um, or, you know, th there's a lot of ways you can really push yourself and you probably won't quite reach the efforts that you'll reach in a race, but that's a good thing. You know, that when you get around other people and in like the race environment, you'll have another gear and like an, a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more to give. And so I think just like take a little bit of the pressure off yourself, give yourself some slack because you've been away for so long. And, um, if it's possible, don't just put one thing on your calendar, you know, maybe have a short season in mind and have a few races that maybe build from a small local race to a, you know, whatever, a marathon or something like that. So that you, you get a little less rusty with each one. All right. Last thing before we get going, thank you for your time and for, for putting out great pieces like you thank always you. do as someone who covers the sport and writes about the sport. In addition to someone who's you know running in the sport as well, what's it like for you from a coverage standpoint to finally be on the cusp of having you know, <laughs> races and this kind of like leaving the kind of the, the COVID era, which I would imagine for anyone covering sports and all of a sudden those sports aren't happening, it can be quite difficult. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's going to be strange because I'm just so just my mindset of writing about running is more just like general, uh, kind of general, like lessons learned and, um, you know, just like general things that runners can be thinking about and getting better through, but it really has not been focused on racing until kind of now it's starting to be. So it'll take a, a shift in mindset, just like it will when I return to races. There you go. All right. And so how, how are you feeling uh, personally with, with your injury and how's your training going? Yeah, it's going, it's going well. Um, I mean, like I said, it's been kind of off and on for the last year. Uh, I trained through it for like most of that time. And Right now I'm doing a kind of combination of running and cross training, really taking advantage of Lever, the bodyweight support system uh, that's made by these guys based out here in Boulder. That's been really helpful. And, um, you know, things always start to come around for me once the weather gets nicer in Boulder. And we've finally had a few days in the 70s. So feeling good. But, uh, you know, I'm determined not to rush this comeback just because it's been like such a brutal kind of up and down process. I I'm just trying to take my time and like enjoy getting back into things and building consistency again. Great. All right, Becky, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
Becky and Alex. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really liking this format. This this, is digging deep with writers who are putting out great work. I think we're going to be doing this for a while. Let me know. Do you like the Running Between the Lines title that a uh, one of our dear listeners came up with? I like it. I know Becky liked it, which was nice to hear. Uh, so let me know what you think. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify, I'll actually make that one of the questions. So basically, on if you listen on Spotify, it's kind of a cool thing. I can post a question in the podcast and you can just see it right on your player and respond and reply. And uh, I can basically pin three of those answers for people to see later. So if you're someone who likes to listen on Spotify because you have an Android device, that's always nice. But also Spotify is there for any and all devices. So um, it's an interesting thing to consider. Also, big ups to our sponsors, OS First and Inside Tracker. If you can do any of this podcast, I would say two things. Visit the sponsors that are intriguing to you and share an episode with your friends. Just whether you tell them in person, send them a note, share it on, on uh, Instagram. It really doesn't matter to me, but when you share the show, it really means a lot. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry.